Welcome back to QAV. Uh, today we have got an interview that we did a couple of weeks ago when I was in Sydney with Tobias Carlyle. You've heard us talk about him a bit on the show recently. He's an Aussie based in California these days. He's the author of a number of books on value investing, including The Acquirer's Multiple, which we've talked about on the show. These days, he's the founder and managing director of Acquirer's Funds. There's sort of a... a deep value investment fund uh, that he runs out of the US. Anyway, we had a terrific chat, lovely guy, so let's get into it. Tobias Carlyle. Hey, how are you, Jess? Good, good to meet you. Cameron, Tony. We are normally in, uh, I'm normally in Brisbane, Tony's here in Sydney, but I'm down visiting, so um, you have the rare and dubious honour of... Uh, this is the so, first time we've ever done anything like this uh, on a Zoom call face-to-face <laughs> with somebody. So, where And you're in New York? I'm in uh, Los Angeles, a little bit closer to the east coast of Australia. Yeah, right. Mm. Don't know why I thought you were on the east coast. How are things in LA at the moment? Uh, look, I love it. Our little part of the world. So we're in, I don't know if you know LA very well, but we're about half an hour south of LAX in uh, the South Bay on the mountain, Palos Verdes. So it's love like it. a little surfing town. It's like two or three hundred thousand people everybody's got pretty big kind of backyards no there's no there's no um COVID out here <laughs> well that's good yeah well, we were supposed to go down to melbourne next week but uh melbourne's having a surge of coronavirus yeah. so we're stuck in sydney mm. it's hard to know whether it's um a, a resurgence of the virus or whether there's just more testing because I, I look at the if I, if I look at the deaths as morbid as that sounds the deaths seem to be pretty consistently down here pretty consistently okay. mm. you know that's obviously a lagging indicator so it might be that that starts picking up again shortly yeah i think the testing here has been pretty consistent i don't think the spike in melbourne is necessarily just a case of more testing but um i'm not sure about in the u.s so let's um well, do you want to start by um, telling uh, our audience a little bit about how you ended up where you are, uh, what, sure. what your background is? I was in a, I was a, I'm a solicitor admitted to practice in Queensland. I don't have a current practicing certificate, haven't had one for 10 years. Um, but I was, I worked at Minters, Minter Ellison. I don't know if it's Minter Ellison anymore. I think they've all been taken over by Magic Circle firms or US firms. They've all got much more grandiose names now. Like Minters may not be, I don't know. Um, and so I worked in mergers and acquisitions and corporate advisory. Uh, I started really early in the 2000s. So I saw, uh, you know, I, I thought it was going to be a sort of uh, dot com um, capital raising type environment. And it turned into a uh, you know, cleaning up after broken deals, M&A type environment, which I actually found a lot more interesting than, than capital raising. And there was this re-emergence of guys who had been um, corporate raiders in the 80s coming back. They were, I guess you'd call them activists, although that was not what they were called at the time. That name has sort of come about more recently. One of the early guys who uh, was approaching the dot-coms in Australia was Farouk Khan. He was the desert raider. He's probably still practicing in, uh, he was out of Perth and he would get control of these little dot-coms, um, either kill the business or use them to acquire others or liquidate the company. And I just thought it was a very interesting approach. And so I, I went back and I read the original edition of security analysis, which has this discussion in sort of chapter 28 or 29 about the old Graham liquidating uh, calculation, how to find the liquidating value of a company, which is the, the net net calculation or the net current asset value cal calculation, which very simply is the most liquid portion balance sheet, cash receivables and inventory discounted. You deduct all of the liabilities of the company from that number. And then you try to buy at two thirds of the residue two-thirds of the value of the residue left over and the residue is known as the net current asset value. There are very few companies that pass that test, but there, you, you find some occasionally. The long-term returns to them, uh, according to studies done in the States, so there was one pretty famous one done by Oppenheimer in 1983. He showed returns of like 30% a year. That's not guaranteed, of course. That's just, that's what had fallen out over that period. 
I updated it from 83 to 2010, I think, finding very similar results. The opportunity hasn't gone away to that point. It may well have now. So I tried to implement, I, I thought to myself, if that opportunity ever presents itself again, if the market ever gets cheap enough, there are lots of these dot-com type position, uh, you know, lots of these net-net type stocks around, then I'll uh, start investing in them myself. And so I, I went to work in the States for a while in San Francisco doing uh, some sort of tech M&A, tech financing, went back to Australia to work in a, in a listed company as general counsel. That company was Pipe Networks, uh, which got taken over. And then I worked in a sort of quasi-activist hedge fund called Trojan Equity that was run by Troy Harry, and he's still investing for himself in Brisbane. And uh, when 2008 came around, late 2008, I just noticed that all of these net nets had kind of come back. So I, so I stopped practicing law, um, started focusing on these things, bought a portfolio of them, started writing about them on a blog called greenbacked.com, and uh, they all did very well. And I, I realized sort of after that period that, what had driven the performance was not really anything that I had done. It was just applying that the right strategy at the right time. And I uh, noticed that they were sort of disappearing from the market pretty quickly. And I wanted to find something that um, I could apply using the same sort of philosophy, something that's very beaten down, but a strategy that you could use over the full investment cycle. And so I, I remember that I had read these papers um, when I had been at university studying business before I did law. And they had discussed this uh, acquirer's multiple, which is just the old EV EBITDA or EV EBIT. And basically that's the measure used by private equity firms and uh, activists to find companies that they can approach and have some sort of um, dealings with. So activists try to get them to pay out the cash or to take over a company or to sell the business and liquidate themselves. Private equity firms more interested for the most part in just taking them private although there are now some private equity firms that invest in these public companies and then try to have them do that publicly. And I, I, I found that that's a strategy that I tested. So I, I tested using some data that I had and then I partnered with a guy uh, who was doing his PhD at Booth, which is the old Chicago School of Business, it's basically the best quant school in the States. We found every bit of industry and economic research we could find, tested it in a model that we built and wrote a book about it called Quantitative Value that came out in 2012. And that quantitative value um, found that the acquirer's multiple, EV EBIT, is the version of it that I preferred, it tended to beat out all the other value metrics. Um, and then we used some other uh, quality type metrics to sort of prove up the business. In, in doing that, I noticed that there was this unusual behavior of the very cheapest stocks. And so I wrote a second book in 2014 called Deep Value. And that just looks at what are the drivers of deep value returns? What are the drivers to value? 2016, I wrote a book called Concentrated Investing, which is about portfolio management, um, concentration, diversification, using things like Kelly, weighting. Uh, we interviewed value investors who had 25 year plus track records about performance to sort of see how they approach that problem, including Charlie Munger, Glenn Greenwald, who runs Brave Warrior, former chieftain, um, Lou Simpson, who ran Geico's book for a very long time. And then in 2017, I published a book called The Acquirer's Multiple, which is just a very simple uh, two hour read summarizing everything that I've done beforehand. And uh, it's written to a fifth grade reading level, so it's pretty accessible. And then in 2019, last year, just about a year ago, I launched a fund um, publicly to explore. It's a, it's a publicly traded fund. It's an ETF called the Acquirers Fund. And the ticker is ZIG. And the idea is it exploits the research that I've conducted in the past to try to find long and short opportunities in the States. And that's, that's the story to this point. Ticker is Z-I-G, Zig, that's great. That's all of us. Because I always refer to you as Mr. Zigzag Man. Well, I've got Zag as well. I'd like to do an international version of it. We've just released, <laughs> we've got, I've just taken over a second fund. This one has been around for a little while and they hadn't had much success with it. Uh, the ticker for this new one is Deep, D-E-E-P. 
and it's going to be a small and micro fund. We're just in the process of transitioning that over, but that'll take a few months to complete that transition. Right. Oh, terrific. Well, thanks for that background, Tobias. What a great story. <laughs> yeah. Oh, great. yeah, very good story. How, how does a guy from Brisbane get to go to the States and work the way you did? Yeah, I, was, uh, I was working at Minters and an opportunity came up internally at Minters that were looking for somebody in the San Francisco office and it was run by mm. uh, a couple of guys, one from Australia and one from one of the firms in Silicon Valley trying to help uh, Minters get a foothold there. And uh, I applied for it internally and, and got the gig. Must have been fun working in M&A in Queensland when you were. That was a bit of a cowboy time, wasn't it? Well, the funny thing was because I worked for uh, Teresa Handicott who had, she got some really good deals through that period. So we did uh, big casino deals, sort of seven, eight billion dollar casino deals and lots of little smaller deals through there. It, it, was, a, it, was, it was good fun. Mm, yeah, I can, I can imagine. <clears throat> so today is the, what date is it today? The 25th? 25th. And the market is down. What does that mean to you? Uh, with your funds and with the way you invest? I really, you know, it's impossible not to focus on the market. I, I don't believe anybody who actually says they don't at all, but I, to, the, to the extent that I can, I try to ignore it because value tends to follow its own idiosyncratic path. And the, the, the best evidence for that is really what's happened over the last 20 years. Value pretty famously lagged in the dot-com run-up and then had a very good period from the early 2000s through to say 2010 or 2015, depending on how you're measuring it, where it really outperformed the market, including through the early part of the 2000s when the market was down and just being long only value stocks, you were up pretty consistently through that period. And then that sort of reversed over the last 10 years where it's been a very rough period for value in the States and for a lot of other international markets, but it's been a much better period for the market and for growthier type stocks. So knowing that, I think it's, it, you can mislead yourself if you focus on what the market is doing because you might have thought in 2000, well, the market's very expensive. This would be a bad time to be in stocks when it was actually one of the best times ever to be in value stocks. And I think that that's also true now that I think the market itself is very, very expensive. I think the very expensive stocks in there, which are FanMag, uh, Tesla, you know, those kind of names, are uh, nosebleed expensive, but underneath all of that, the value stocks themselves are very beaten down and very cheap. And if you believe that undervaluation drives returns, then it really is a very good time to be a value investor. Having said that, you know, it's underperforming and it's, it's a rough period to be a value investor, but it's that underperformance that, and that relative cheapness and absolute cheapness now that will drive future returns. So I think it's a very good time to be a value investor. Yeah, I mean, I, I keep hearing people say value investing is dead, but I'm still getting good returns. Um, like I imagine you are too. How, how are you faring in this period? It's been a, it hasn't been a great period. Um, we've gone backwards and that's been driven by, you know, we're, there are two legs to the book. There's a long leg that we're, we're between 100 and 130% long and we're 30% short. Um, that can go up and down depending on the opportunity set. As it happens, the opportunity set is very good on the short side. I think we've been generating a lot of return on the short side. It's just that the longs have been quite weak. And I think a good example of that is Berkshire, which is Warren Buffett's investment company. Berkshire is a $440 billion market capitalization company. I think on any, you can do a sum of the parts, you can look at it on an earnings multiple basis, any way that you sort of look at it, I think it's worth it could be worth 50% more than where it's trading, or you can think about it as generating something like 13 to 15% compound on its, on its, that's at a, buying it at a discount to what I think its earnings trajectory will be over the next five or 10 years. So I think it's a very good company, but it's just, it just really hasn't participated. So it got beaten up when, uh, when the market collapsed through March 23, and it just hasn't bounced much out of that bottom. It's up sort of 11 or 12% since then. And I think that that's, that's pretty representative of value. If you're looking for companies over here that have solid balance sheets, um, generating pretty good free cash flow, um, management's doing something with that cash flow, buying back stock or retiring debt or doing sensible things with it. Those are sort of the companies that haven't participated in, the, uh, in this run-up and it's tended to be the companies that 
on one hand, there are some very good businesses in there. I think FanMag, which is Facebook, Apple, Netflix, Google, Amazon, and Microsoft. I think Facebook, phenomenal business. Amazon, incredible business. Google, maybe the best business in the world. Uh, Apple, very, very good business. And Microsoft, very, very good business too. Netflix, terrible business, but it gets included in there with those ones. So you've got to co consider it too. They've been very, very strong. Those are very good businesses with lots of free cash flow and they're growing it at a very high rate. But then there are a lot of other names in there that are really junky businesses. They have no free cash flow. They're issuing enormous amounts of share-based compensation and they're not penalized for it at all. They seem to go up year after year after year. So a lot of the money over here has been focused into those positions and a lot of value guys have drifted into that growth here end of the market. I think it's anomalous, it's ahistorical, and I think for the most part, you get better returns by being at the more conservative end of the market, but that, that hasn't been the case for this last sort of five or so years. Yeah, I mean, I think a couple of comments there. I think with those fan mags that you spoke about, I think a lot of investors can't separate the idea of a good company from a good investment. 100% agree. And maybe it's a factor of the fact that the interest rates are low and they can borrow money and buy quality stocks at any price. And, and with low interest rates, it doesn't cost them much. Maybe that's driving it. But, but I can't help thinking we've seen this movie before. And, you know, in sort of 99, when, when the dot-com was booming, Warren Buffett was shrugging his shoulders and saying, I don't understand it. And Berkshire Hathaway was underperforming. And people were saying value was dead. And we're seeing that movie replay right now again. It's very similar. And I, 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 look at, I look at the data, I look at the research. Uh, and so AQR uh, is a big quantitative research shop over here run by Cliff Asnes, very, very good firm. Asnes is very smart and I like his approach. He's very open about his research process and the data that they look at and they publish these papers on a regular basis looking at what's happened. One of the things that they looked at is, uh, is systematic value dead, is value uh, as a strategy did. And they went through that in a, in a paper and, and Cliff sort of discussed it uh, in, a, in a blog post. And so one of the things they looked at is, has value got cheaper relative to its own fundamentals? And that has happened. So what that indicates is it's more sort of underlying price just falling relative to fundamentals rather than there being some problem with the underlying fundamentals of those business. So, you know, if you hold a company and it goes down 50% in terms of price, if the earnings and the book value, if the value itself has declined 50%, then you've lost 50% of your money. But if the price has just fallen and the, the value at the intrinsic value, the book value, the earnings, the cash flow has stayed pretty stable, then all that's happened is that the opportunities got cheaper, the opportunities got better. Mm. And that has been what has happened. So that, that happened in 1998 and it happened in 1999. And the same thing has occurred in 2018 and 2019, and it's persisted through 2020. That's, that's unusual behavior. And it really, are, those are the only four years out of the last 25 where that's been the case. And so I wouldn't expect that to be something that would occur uh, many more times in the future, although I don't really know when that sort of stops, but I think that it's, it's anomalous. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, and I, I really liked uh, in the inquiry's multiple your analysis of regression to the mean, and it's something which resonates with with me as well. Um, but to your point, I, I find that you know well, I have a, a similar but different method to yours, uh, which focuses on operating cash flow and then uh, a checklist of quality um, measures. What, what are your quality uh, measures? Oh, things like uh, how much ownership is there by the the founders and the principals in the company. Yep. Um, is is equity increasing over time? Um, I also, I mean, there's some value ones in there too, like is it the lowest uh, price to earnings ratio in the last six uh, reporting periods? Mm -hmm. um, I use a couple of services like Stock Doctor and Share Analysis, which are available over here, and they they give very easy financial health uh, scores for companies, which I use. Makes sense. So, yeah, so I use those. Um, and, and I come up like your when I run the acquirers multiple filters, um, we get a similar sort of set of stocks um, appearing on on each. Uh, but what I find is that, you know, we go through periods like this is the ones that start coming up as value either have management changes, which kicks the share price back up again, or they get they get acquired and they get acquired at a premium. So what's your, what's your universe? I, I just list on the I just uh, 
I just invest on the ASX. Yeah, yeah. But and I've never had. I, I lived in Canada for five years, and I, I found that the services um, over there weren't as good as the Australian market. And of course, I knew the Australian market better. But I've never had um, never had a period when I haven't had just a abundance of, of value companies to invest in in Australia. I've never had the need to look overseas, really. Yeah, that makes uh, that makes complete sense. I I, I understand that, and I uh, I've. I'm very familiar with Australia, of course, because that's where I grew up and that's where I started. Mm. But I, I'm just that I prefer the US just by virtue of the fact that it's so big. Yeah. Uh, there, there's so many more opportunities. There are so many more opportunities for things to just get lost, regularly uncover. And you know, often in plain sight, you, you'd be well aware that there are lots of studies that show that the price of a company varies sort of from a peak to trough. It's like down seventy percent, or it goes up mm. three times over the course of a year. So no way value is moving as much as that. It's sort of rotating around or um, reverting around a mean, which you might think of as the value. And if you've got a rough idea what the value is, you can take advantage of those when they appear. And they, they do regularly in very big stocks and very good stocks. You've just got to separate out the narrative that is driving the price down from the underlying intrinsic value. And that's, that's a difficult thing to do. Well, I don't. I don't look at the narrative. I, I mean, the the um, there's always a story associated with a stock, and that's why I think people get carried away with some of these dot com uh, type stocks because they have sure. good stories. But um, I just look at the figures and go with what the figures say. Well, you'd be well uh, aware. You know, the narrative for Berkshire is Buffett's old because he's ninety. Yeah. He hasn't sort of. Uh, he didn't swing in in March at the bottom, uh, mm-hmm. and so therefore he's lost it. And his old economy. You know, same sort of argument in in the late 1990s and he doesn't he doesn't get these new things even though currently apple makes up 21 percent of the market value mm. of, of Berkshire. Yeah. that's all i mean by narrative like it's just it's just explaining why there's a discount and if i look at that and i think well none of that really makes much sense to me then that's the kind of right. position that i tend to put on right yeah and I, I actually take it as a bit of a warning sign that, that buffett didn't swing at the bottom of, of the, the market in march he, he couldn't find things to swing at just just for the audience, uh, the, by the way, uh, Tobias, in this podcast, I play the idiot because I am an idiot. Uh, I'm the student. For those of us who don't understand what you guys mean by he didn't swing, you, you take it, this is Buffett's old thing about have a, have a swing your mug. He didn't buy anything. Is that what you guys are talking about by swing? Are you talking about throwing his uh, car keys into a bowl in the middle of the room and seeing whose wife he goes home with, uh, Charlie's <laughs> wife or... Uh, he may very well be up for something like that, but uh, I meant twofold. One, that he couldn't find a big acquisition to undertake or, or that he couldn't find more of the uh, sort of positions that they already hold to, to buy in size. And also that he didn't buy back Berkshire's stock because, you know, I think that Berkshire's cheap. So it's, it is a warning sign that he didn't buy. The only thing that I would say is that he's clearly got some uh, he's clearly very concerned about the impact of coronavirus and the shutdown mm. over here. You know, the thing about Buffett is he's always been incredibly optimistic. In Even at the peak in 2007, you could find him saying, market's not that expensive, uh, mm. given where interest rates are, feeling pretty positive about it. Market crashed. He's always very, very optimistic. The only times when he hasn't been optimistic, 69 when he shut down his original mm. partnership and more, and 2000. 20 when he gave that uh he gave the annual meeting talk in that auditorium that was completely empty totally spooky and he sounded really somber which might have been appropriate given that there are a lot of people dying of coronavirus at the time but he's had a lot of opportunities since then and really all he's done is sell off the airlines sell down some banks and other things like that not really swung at anything so i think that's a little concerning but i i think that it's, it's explained by the fact that he has such a good overview of the economy from the nature of the businesses that they tend to own outright, like BNSF, which is a uh, which is a railway, and they own energy businesses, and those are all pretty sensitive to economics and so to the economy. So you can see what's happening. I think he probably recognises that there's a little bit more uh, damage to the underlying economy than perhaps the stock market indicates. Well, yeah, and he came out during the latest AGM and said that there are a few people who knocked on his door with deals that just weren't good enough to, to swing at. So, and he also said they were able to get funding from traditional sources. So, oh, the uh, front run by the Fed. <laughs> the Fed bailed Jack interest rates so low, and then the federal government's come out with bailouts. And I think that's been a big part of it too. Yeah, no, I agree. So, 
it, it is a bit, it, well, it's not, I don't worry about it, but it is interesting that people are saying he's lost his touch, but I think he's probably retained his touch. He hasn't, he hasn't swung right. at underperforming uh, situations, which is what he does. You never get any credit, do you? You're one of the richest men in the world. You've run this spectacular yeah. investment strategy of your entire yeah. life, and they still don't give you credit for it. <laughs> and, and he's taught a whole generation or generations of people how to invest. No benefit of the doubt for it. For it. And, and, he, and he comes out every now and then and says, I've been teaching value investing for 40 years and no one's listening. Right. <laughs> let me, let me get, yeah, let me get into The Acquirer's Multiple, which I think is a great book. Uh, one of the questions I have when I, I reread it before we, uh, before we came on, and one of the questions I have is there's, uh, I mean, around very, very summarized terms, you're taking the market cap, you're adding debt and you're deducting cash. And that's the enterprise value of a company. Right. Or, um, and then you're looking at the uh, earnings compared to that to give the multiple that you're after. But just uh, uh, that's a great way of, I guess, ranking companies. But if I was going to acquire a company, I wouldn't actually buy that debt, would I? I'd be assuming the debt. That's exactly right. You're assuming the debt. But it's just it's useful to think about what the liabilities of the company really are. And so I just... I, because I think that, you know, a good example of that is General Motors before it went into bankruptcy in 2007, 8, 9, whenever that actually occurred, uh, you know, had, had I think that the market cap could have got down to $10 billion or something that, like that before uh, bankruptcy, but it had something like $200 billion in debt. And if you were just looking at the market cap, you missed the rest of the iceberg, which was all of that debt that it had hanging out there. And just as a general rule, I like less debt because it, that's one of the ways that you get into trouble if you, your earnings for whatever just get a little bit weak through some period of time, which happens regularly, particularly if you go through something like this most recent coronavirus shutdown issue over here. You just need to be aware of it. And so I think if you're thinking like an acquirer, you're just thinking about what are all of the liabilities that I have to assume here. You don't necessarily have to fund that debt when you take no. it over all that that private equity does sometimes do that. And sometimes these bonds have got, you know, various bullet payments when that happens. But I, I, I just think it's a useful exercise to think about what you're actually buying. And sometimes, you know, you find these things that for whatever reason, they've just let the debt, uh, sorry, they've let the cash pile up on the balance sheet. And so you're paying even less than it looks like you're paying on a price to earnings basis because they're quite cheap because they've got cash there. That happens with Google pretty regularly. Google's very cash rich, generates a lot of cash don't really have a lot of ways to deploy it. So they, they spend it on these moonshots, which kind of disguises how much they really earn. But they're sort of a very cash generative, uh, don't really need any debt to run that business. So Google's one of those things that's often cheaper than it actually looks. Right, yeah. And and uh, I guess just to explore that a bit further, you add or you take off cash from the uh, <clears throat> the market cap to, to, to help you rank those uh, better companies. Why wouldn't you do? Why wouldn't you also take off hard assets like real estate, for example? And I, I say that because a lot of the PE uh, <clears throat> PE acquisitions in Australia, the first thing they do is they sell the real estate, and that helps to fund the um, acquisition, especially in uh, areas like department stores. So, you know, my it makes total sense. PE, it makes total sense estate. to do that. Absolutely, yeah, it makes so, total sense to do that. <clears throat> but you it's don't just include that, that in your valuations. I think the reason that. The reason that I don't when, uh, you know, when we're running a, a back test, systematically testing these things, it's just hard to get real estate values included right. into that liability number. So I, I just I just don't include them for the purposes of back testing. But for the purposes of investing, you know, real estate can be, it, you know, uh, there's a great line from, I'm going to forget now, but I think it's, I think it's Marty Whitman where he says, the, the problem with the way that Graham used to do his net current asset value uh, calculation is sometimes, you know, you could look at a suit or a fashion store and it's got a whole lot of inventory and the inventory is really not worth much cents on the dollar if you try to spend it, if you try to sell it. But then you could have, you know, one of their assets could be a, a commercial building that's well tenanted, mm. and you, at any time you can go out and there's a ready market for that over here and you can convert that into cash much more readily than you can convert inventory. So it's, it's really just a rough rule of thumb for doing yeah, this calculation. Yeah. It's not really meant to be, uh, when you drill down into the, any particular company, yeah, absolutely. You've got to look at the nature of the assets that, and the liabilities that you're taking on. Yeah, right. Okay. Um, and then on the other side, on the, um, the, 
uh, income side, you, you talk about, uh, I think you call it net operating income. Uh, I just wanted to compare that with what we use in, in, uh, in Australia that I use in my uh, valuations, which is called net operating cash flow, which is the kind of top line of the cash flow statement in um, ASX accounting standards. I think you're including things like depreciation and amortization and, and capital expenditure in your net operating expenses. Um, which we don't. Do, do you ever find that that's a, an issue for you? Because one of the things that I find in whenever I do any sort of deep dive into a company's accounts is that they're the kind of things which a creative CFO can manipulate, you know, defer capex or uh, bolster up depreciation to make the results look better or worse. Uh, is that an issue for you? Yeah, I 100% need to be careful of that. So the reason that I use operating earnings, uh, operating earnings are the recurring uh, earnings before interest and taxes roughly equates to that kind of number, except it's not constructed from the bottom of the income statement up. It's constructed mm. from the top down just for, just for, to make it easier to calculate on a cleaner calculation. Um, they have to be recurring. So sometimes you'll capture things like one-off sales of assets or businesses mm. or something like that. Obviously you don't want those in there. That I, I, I use that metric because that metric tends to be the most robust. So operating earnings is basically the accounting version of cash flow. But I don't stop there. I then go and verify that the cash flows over time match the operating earnings. And that's a very important one. There are two mm -hmm. ways that we do that. One is we use this, we have various measures of financial distress, fraud and earnings manipulation. And one of those is this accruals measure. And when accounting earnings diverge from cash flows, because of the nature of double entry bookkeeping, there has to be some sort of weird asset that grows somewhere else on the accounts. And this was the way, so you might've seen that Wirecard in Germany has been shown to be a fraud and they're missing $2 billion in cash. So why would they have such an enormous asset like that go missing? And the reason is that they've clearly been, the accounting earnings have been overstating the cash flows for a very long period of time. And the only way you can um, create something like that is by accruing an asset. So I'm always on the lookout for weird assets that are way too big for the rest of the balance sheet. Uh, and the other way we capture it is just to make sure that cash flows roughly match operating earnings over time because they can diverge in any given year for a variety of timing reasons. But over, say, five or seven or ten years, they should roughly line up. And so we're trying to catch it at one stage. We're looking for it in the sense that it's a fraud or it's earnings manipulation or it's in financial distress, because you always find those three things together. And in the other sense, we're just trying to verify that the business is actually generating the cash flows that the accounting statements say that they are. Right, yeah. So, so you actually do, <clears throat> excuse me, some kind of filtering. You do some filtering or some deep analysis, which goes on after you have your uh, numbers and after you do your ranking. Um, yeah, so we, the, the, the full model uh, is, is explained in, a, in, a, in the book Quantitative Value, which you can live a long and healthy, happy life never <laughs> reading that book. It's written like a quasi kind of textbook, but I, I kind of felt like given that I had a background in law, I needed to show some proficiency in, in this stuff. And so I, I just, it, it shows all of the tools that you can use and we employ those tools and, and, and the book is a little bit old now. It came out in 2012, so that we're, there are lots of other tools that we employ too. You know, we're, in one sense, we're very traditional value investors looking for robust balance sheet, robust business, uh, lots of cash flow, and then you want to make sure that management is doing sensible things too, like is management spending all of this money by buying overpaying for acquisitions that's a bad thing are they using it to pay down yep. debt buy back their own equity when it's cheap that's a good thing and so i want there's lots of things that we look for to sort of make sure that the balance sheet is good is good and healthy the business mm -hmm. is good and healthy and management is sensible right yeah that makes sense okay so and you kind of cheap. have your own you kind of have your own checklist which goes um beside the value uh, dimensions and then we have a final step, which is a forensic accounting analysis, which um, I have done that myself as, a, uh, as an M&A attorney. But uh, now I use an off-the-shelf uh, service that does that just because there's, there's just so much. Uh, there is so many, um, you know, there's so much flexibility in, in creating these financial statements. CFOs, as mm -hmm. you say, they are among the most creative people 
mm. uh, that you're, that you're likely to ever meet. Some of them are, some of them are very, very good, giving you an honest description of what's happening in the business. But even the ones who are trying to do it as honestly as they possibly can, it's still going to be disagreements about should we expense this? Should we capitalize this? Yeah. What's the nature of this thing? And it just, it, it makes for, it makes it hard to compare things on an apples to apples basis. So I'm mm. always on the lookout for, you know, is there some convertible note carried as a liability in these <laughs> notes that sh- that's, uh, that's not in the financial statements that should be. And so that's the kind of, I'm just looking for any, any, why is this stock cheap? What is it that everybody else knows that I don't know about this thing? Yeah, look, I, I agree with you. I, I've worked uh, for a long time in corporate life and <clears throat> I'd, I'd say like my, all the CFOs I came into contact with were very straight and very right. you know, ramrod straight really. But having said that, uh, you know, the, the best CEOs I, I you know, knew and worked for were virtu- virtuosos when it came to managing the balance sheet. They, they'd put hollow logs in there this year because they knew next year was going to be hard. They'd hold provisions, right. uh, all that kind of thing, yeah. And that's where the creativity comes in. Well, there's lots of yeah. uh, there's lots of ways for um, CFOs to, to do that. But I, I, I agree with it. For the most part, CFOs are very straight, and the, the but it's it's even just small things, disagreements between you know mm. capitalization and expenditure, expensing exactly. or capitalizing it makes some of the difference. Yep, what the amortization rate should be, all that kind of thing. Yeah. Right. Let me ask you another question. We. Um, one of the things that we focus on here is sentiment before we buy a stock or, <clears throat> or before we sell a stock. I hadn't come across any use of uh, sentiment or or trends in your books. Is that something you look at or do you ignore it completely? Um, I don't use sentiment or, and I don't really know how to use it. So I'll ask you in a moment mm-hmm. how you do it. But uh, sure. what, what I like to use when I short, so because shorting is, there's a little bit of uh, science and a little bit of um, magic to shorting. One of the things about shorts is you're often short someone who's very charismatic as a CEO. So Musk over here, <laughs> CEO of Tesla, very, very charismatic guy, cult-like devotion from the people who invest in Tesla. If you look at the financial statements or the, 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 the growth in that business, there's not much growth for six quarters, lots of debt on that balance sheet. It's still a metal bender. They've got to build factories to produce more cars so it's not costless growth like software as a service Mm. but that stock is um, sort of untethered to the fundamentals (laughs) and as a short that's a that's potentially a good thing also potentially a very dangerous thing so you could be uh, and you can go through there's a there's a thing called the value investors club over here you can go through and you can look at shorts over and it's free you can just to be a to see current stuff you need to be a member but to see the old stuff you don't need to be a member you can look at the shorts that people have suggested over the years and watch them get blown out year after year after mm. year because yep. if the stock price is going up and the underlying business is growing too, then people will be, if the stocks, if the earnings are up 30% year over year, it doesn't matter if it's on 20 times or 60 times or 120 times earnings, it could just go up 30% year after year after year. Yeah. So what you want is broken momentum. And right, I think okay. that says the market's getting tired of the story. The market doesn't like the fact that, for whatever reason, and that they're financing themselves out of out of the market all the time. And I think that often indicates that there's something precipitous about to happen. So that's the final step that I take in in shorting, just making sure that the momentum is kind of drained out of these things. Yep. But but how do you use sentiment? Oh, so for sentiment, yeah. So I use a very simple thing which we call the three point trend line. So. If a stock is going up, it usually follows, it usually trades in a range with like a, a zigzag pattern with some highs and lows. So on the way up, we take the two highest peaks uh, and then we just extend that out and look for the, it's a buy signal for us if the, if the price goes above that trend line. Right. And on the way down, it's, it's the same. So it's a, if the stock's going up, we look at the, the two lowest uh, troughs on that upward trend draw a line and if the stock price goes below that trend line we sell that makes sense i think you know momentum is a very robust factor all by itself then there's lots of different versions of momentum whether you're just using uh looking back 12 months or using some sort of moving average or or, or, you know there's any Mm. multitude of ways to implement it i don't use it on the long side although there's no reason why you can't Uh, i just don't on the short side i like to use it just as a protective uh, mechanism but you know, again, it's not something that you necessarily have to use. There are 
lots of different ways of shorting. I tend to short small and rebalance regularly. Um, and that's how I protect myself. There are other people who will put on quite big short positions and then they go and sort of become activists and try to create some, right. uh, to create their own catalyst in the stock. I don't have the personality for it, so I don't do it. <laughs> I've never had much, uh, well, I, I haven't ever actually shorted the stock, but whenever I've tested it, I've never had much <laughs> luck because, you know, basically I invert my model and then find stocks which are overvalued, but they just keep going up because they're all the ones that we're talking about right. at the moment. You know, in Australia, it's the afterpays and things like that. But right. yeah, even though they, they appear horribly overvalued, there's still enough people who are buying the Kool-Aid or drinking the Kool-Aid and buying the story that uh, just keep sending them higher. And if the underlying's growing, there's not much you can do. You don't really want to be short something that will be materially bigger in in a year or three years or five years. The sort of stuff that I'm shorting is, you know, it sets up all of my red flags for fraud, for financial distress, right, for earnings okay. manipulation. Yeah, yeah. And just to go back to the C CFOs, that's the only time that a CFO needs to do anything. CFOs don't need to do anything when the business is going really well. When the business stumbles... Uh, or they get that first stumble and the market's expecting a whole lot of growth. And that's when something funky happens. And so I'm always, when I think that a business should be a little bit weaker than it, than it, than it is, or that the, the statements show that it is, that I'm, I always get a little bit suspicious. So Tesla had this blockbuster Q1 this year, which I find astonishing given that most of the US was in quarantine for sort of a material part of it. So it'd be interesting to see what happens with Tesla. I don't know, but I'm suspicious of their financial statements, especially because their CFO is about 34 years old. I think she's an Australian too, isn't she? Um, I think it's a bloke. I think. Uh, okay. But I, I don't Maybe know. it was the last one. Yeah. Sorry, I interrupted. Um, no, yeah, but look, I, I, I agree. I think uh, one, a red flag for me is when the CFO resigns, which is which is um, often well, the case. Let's have a few times at Tesla. Yeah. <laughs> the current guy's been in this since last year. He's yeah, 35 now, Zach Kirkhorn. Okay, well, it might have been the, the last one before that. She came across as Telstra's CFO. I think she's gone back on the board, I think, of Tesla. I've forgotten her name. Yeah, uh, that, let me that ask, does sound vaguely familiar. Let me ask you about portfolio construction. You mentioned in the acquirers multiple that you like to hold a fairly concentrated position of about 30 stocks. So, so first of all, why 30? Yeah, so I, I wrote a book called Concentrated Investing where I looked at all the different ways that value managers particularly have uh, sized their portfolios. And you, the, the funny thing is that as, as I was doing those interviews, I come across a lot of people who I'd say, do you run a concentrated portfolio? And they'd say, yes, I do. We're 40 names and we're conviction. And then I'd say, that's interesting. And then I'd ask another person, do you run a concentrated portfolio? And they said, not really. We've got 10 names. And that's like an index. You know, so there's, <laughs> the definition is, is loose. The... Yeah. Uh, the academic research not related to value, just the general academic research finds that the point where the non-diversifiable risk is sort of minimized is somewhere between 20 and 30 positions. And they're, they're, what, they're, what they're saying there is how do you replicate the market portfolio? And you can, you can sort of invert that problem and think about it. Like if you were just randomly sampling names from the market, how many names do you have to sample before mm. Uh, your own portfolio just starts trading like the market does. And this is just randomly sampling. And it turns out if you get to between 20 and 30 names, you're pretty well correlated with the market. And you have to do something. You have to have some sort of active bias in your portfolio to deviate. And one active bias is value. There are lots of other ones, momentum and so on. So I then tested um, various different levels of concentration. And you find that as you become more concentrated, uh, you get a lot more volatility because the, your, your, your fortunes are tied to the, uh, to the fortunes of any individual. You know, one stock, you, you basically, you, you track that stock. Two stocks, you're tracking half of each of those and so on. By the time you get to 20 or 30, you're not gaining any more, uh, you're not losing any more volatility and you're not gaining any more return. So you're sort of getting to this point where it's just becoming a capacity strategy. So 30, I think, gives the best balance of volatility and return and I, I, I know that volatility is not something that value guys like but at a portfolio level it is worth thinking about if you've got five names you're going to have an extremely volatile portfolio it's just hard for folks to stay invested in it at 50 or 100 names there's a lot less volatility but now there's going to be a lot less expression of your underlying skill 
So I just think that 20 to 30, anywhere in there is fine. 20 is sort of more volatile, higher return. 30 is a little bit less volatile, a little bit lower return, but pretty comparable. 30 was the number that fell out to me as giving the best balance of both. Yeah, look, I'm glad there's some academic research behind it because 20, 20 was the number I always came to from experience. And I did, I did uh, run, um, I had the research department of a large retailer report to me at one stage and I asked them if you were sampling the market, how many? And from memory, they said between 20 and 30. So that makes sense yeah. as well. But yeah, it's good to know there's a lot of research in that. Because that's what I find. I find 20 is about the right number. You, um, you're not necessarily overly correlated to the market. It's manageable. Um, and if you have some good performers in there, they can make a difference. That's it. And there's not really much difference between 20 and 30. It's almost sort of taste at that level. But I just, I think that, you know, if you're a discretionary value investor and you're putting in a lot more work, then 20 would be appropriate because I tend to be a little bit more systematic. I just lean towards 30. Right. And what about building positions in that? First of all, do you dollar cost average when you're building? And secondly, do you have an equal weighting for those 30 stocks? Yeah, so they're equal weighted at inception. And the reason for that, so one of the things that I investigated in concentrated investing is this idea of Kelly weighting a portfolio. Monish Pabrai, who's an investor over here, wrote the Dando portfolio pretty famously wrote sort of a Buffett talked about it, Pabrai sort of um, popularized it, if you like. And then a lot of folks who became very faddish, very popular over here to be a value investor who does this Kelly weighting. And the idea is that you're looking at your edge over your odds and you mm. can calculate these things. So your edge, you can figure out from what your own estimate of intrinsic value is and the odds are then what the market is pricing. That's the, what the market, the, the differential between the price and the intrinsic value. That's the odds that you're offered. You can figure out a way to put that into the formula and come up with a number. The problem is that if you're not, if the way that Kelly was invented was it was supposed to be used to, to play blackjack mm. where you're sitting at a table or you get anything where you have an individual bet. So you get one bet, you've got your bankroll, you decide what portion of your bankroll you're going to allocate to that bet. You make the bet, then you get your money back, win or lose. You know, you, you, you then move on to the next hand. That's, that's not what happens in the market. What happens in the market is you do all this stuff in series. So you do it all mm -hmm. in parallel. So what happens is you have to put all of your bets on at once. And when you do that, the primary idea behind Kelly is that you never risk ruin. You can never have a zero, but you can put some of these positions into Kelly and they will say, well, you should put 50% or more into this, into this position. And you can have a series of positions that add up to more than your, your book. And if you've got a little bit of leverage, then there's potential that you can, you can be ruined. So what Kelly uh, gets wrong in that instance is that you should be looking at any positive expectation bet. And that might include treasuries. It might include commodities that might include other things and if you do that that will scale down the size of your bet and if you properly include all of these things you end up making much much smaller bets than you might think that you should be making at first calculation of kelly in isolation so i i, I do all those calculations and i realize it's incredibly computationally difficult and you're basically falling out of these numbers where they're, they're roughly equal weight in any case so i <laughs> just to simplify my life i just you know, you're already, I'm drawing, my universe is the 1,500 largest names. I'm pulling out 30. I'm already at, uh, you know, 3%. Uh, is that 3%? 5% of the universe? I think that's right. No, I've lost my mind here. Uh, it's 10% yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. is, yeah. yeah. It's one, no, it's one-fifth of 10%. So it's 2%, sorry. Right. Is yeah. that right? Have I lost my mind? I think that's right. Basically, at that level, you know, you're already very, very concentrated in, and I, to, to say that 15 is any more important than 30 or 15 mm -hmm. is less important than position one, it's sort of, you're making a, it's a long boat at that point. So just to simplify my life, I said, we're going to equal weight. We do tend to dollar cost average because we will buy over, uh, over a number of rebalance periods. If something's gone up, we'll trim it back to equal weight. If it's gone down, we'll rebuy it to equal weight. And there is some return in doing that and we have because the portfolio is long short we have a little bit of the shannon's demon effect in there which is again something we discussed in concentrated investing but when the market when you have two anti-correlated assets uh, you can have them both lose over time but provided one goes up and one goes down and vice versa and you keep on allocating from one to the other the whole portfolio does better than the two individual components 
and that's the effect I'm trying to get into the portfolio. Okay. Yeah, I must admit, um, I, mean, I love Shannon and, and Kelly, and I, I'm a bit of a punter, so I use Kelly when I when I bet. Yeah, that's the way. Uh, yeah, but um, I've always struggled with Kelly in, in the stock market because I find, it may just be me, but I find my IV calculations or anybody else's IV calculations are just so flaky. They're way um, too rough. Yeah, I yeah, agree with that. Yeah, I don't have much, um, I don't have, I don't put much stock in, you know, very intricate DCFs. And yeah, uh, yeah, and so I find that when I'm trying to work out my my odds, it just doesn't doesn't work for me. But anyway, no, there's a great story because Ed Thorpe, uh, he, he's actually he's out here. He he was a math teacher, a math professor at my wife's university. I don't think he was there when she was there. She's a fair bit younger than he is. But, uh, his son, they live out here. They, he went to Pasadena where they had the Value Investing Congress every year, and Pabrai gave this talk, and his son came back and said to Ed Thorpe, the, the famous quant investor mathematician you know they're using your kelly criterion so that's it that's him so so thought because he's a mathematician he writes this mathematical proof showing why you can't use kelly or the problems with using kelly in the market it's great paper really? he includes stuff, such stuff as you don't have uh you know the first thing that i discussed the series and parallel idea and then he also said mm -hmm. it doesn't properly account for black swans the calculation's mm -hmm. not precise enough all of those sort of things. It's a completely sensible paper. And when I read that, I, I, I thought, yeah, that's, that, there's no point using Kelly. <laughs> yeah, I've come to the same conclusion. Uh, that's, that's good. A um, couple of questions about, uh, about your portfolio. What, uh, do you have a minimum market cap size that you look at when you're buying a stock? So for the, for, uh, the acquirer's fund, it's, the, it's basically, it maps to a universe that's equivalent to the largest 1,500. So that varies mm -hmm. over time, but I think at the moment it's between two and a half and $3 billion at the lower end. But then I have this second portfolio that uh, we'll be transitioning over to, and this is in DEEP, which is the Roundhill Acquirer's Deep Value ETF. And that is going to be basically the universe underneath the 1,500, so it's small and micro cap. I think the minimum there is $75 million. And that's, mm -hmm. a, that's a function of having enough liquidity for the ETF. And right, uh, I yeah. think the largest market cap there is whatever the, the, the cutoff on the other one, two and a half or three billion, it's in that little universe there. Do you focus on how much is traded? I focus on average daily transaction volumes when I'm working out what my cutoff is for a stock. Yeah, there's a, the cutoffs are a function of the ETF wrapper rather than anything necessarily that I do because when I, when I was investing for my own PA uh, about a decade ago, you know, you find that illiquidity is in itself a sort of predictor of good returns because people, when something gets really cheap, people who hold it, they know that and they don't want to sell it at that price. The only reason they sell there is because they're forced sellers basically or they, they want, they've got a reason to, they've got a better opportunity somewhere else. So mm -hmm. I don't mind illiquidity, but it's a double-edged sword. If something's hard to get into, it's often hard to get out of too. I've been caught plenty of times that way. Yeah, the old uh, fire exit uh, That's you know, it. trap. Yeah, can't get out when you need to. Um, look, we've talked a lot about when to acquire something. When do you sell out of your portfolio? Selling is the hardest thing that I think that any value investor will tell you. Every value investor spends uh, their entire career figuring out when to buy and never ever really thinks about selling but laments how badly they sell. So <laughs> I, I, the rule that I have come up with, this is what I do basically, I, I have a, an opportunity set of an ideal portfolio and the ideal portfolio is updated tick by tick, day by day, all the time I can look at what I would like to hold in the portfolio and then I have the actual portfolio um, and they will vary over time and so what happens is some of the names will just get too expensive to be in the ideal portfolio and I'll have other better opportunities in the ideal portfolio. And so on a rebalance date, I'll exchange one for the other. It does create this problem that sometimes something will go in one quarter and then I don't, I don't rebalance straight out the next quarter, but it can come out. Uh, it can come out about a year later and then it might go straight back in. So I've just done that with Hewlett Packard over here. I bought it. Uh, in May last year and it got a bid from Xerox and I tend to sell into the bid then the bid broke and this and HPQ was back into my ideal portfolio so I rebought it again so I find that that happens a little bit that um, it, the, the names do get recycled a little bit but I'm trying to 
I'm trying to keep the portfolio uh, as close to being as cheap as possible as I can. It's not a, it's not a perfect solution because you, you give up some returns as value transitions into momentum and they can keep on going up for a very long time. But because the ETF is um, it's capital gains tax advantage, there's no implications for the holders when we roll in and out of things. I tend to um, roll in and out a little bit more frequently than I might otherwise. So just tell me a bit about rebalancing. It's something I don't do, but you, you do. So why do you do that and what's the advantage of it? The idea is that anybody, because it's a, it's a continuously traded public fund, anybody who's coming in at any point should be able to take advantage of whatever is driving, you know, whatever the, the thesis, the strategy of the fund is. And so the strategy of my fund is deep value on one hand, and then the spread between deep value and the really junky companies on the other. Most of the time that spread is closing, although it's been pretty famously widening over the last couple of years because the, 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 the frothier dot coms run away a little bit. Uh, so anybody buying at any point in time should be able to get a, 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 an unusually undervalued portfolio. And so they can buy and then the portfolio gets a little bit more expensive theoretically over the quarter. That doesn't always happen, didn't happen last quarter, um, has happened this quarter. And uh, when they buy, then we will rebalance into some cheaper names and it'll move the portfolio back down into being a cheaper portfolio. And we're always trying to, you know, they're trying to maximize the amount of cash that the, that the portfolio you know, looking through the businesses, trying to maximise the amount of cash it holds, the amount of cash flow it generates, and making sure that it's buying back stock and concentrating the intrinsic value down into what's left. So why do you do that quarterly and not uh, six monthly or yearly? Yeah, the, the, the main reason for doing it quarterly uh, is just that it's, there's a little bit of seasonality in the market. So pretty well known, there's this January effect where you get very good returns in January. And if you didn't rebalance close to the bottom in, say, March 2009, that's really hurt returns. And a, and a similar thing happened this time around because the bottom was March 23. So you need to be rebalancing around the end of the quarter. Even rebalancing quarterly is imperfect. And I don't rebalance the entire portfolio. Instead, what I, I sort of think about the portfolio as being four sub-portfolios. And each one is... Um, so it's four sub-portfolios, which means that there's sort of seven or eight stocks long in each sub-portfolio and seven or eight stocks short, much more heavily weighted to the longs. And then the, just the nature of value is many of these names, we, when you buy them, they can continue to deteriorate for a quarter. And it takes about sort of nine to 12 months for them to, to get their mojo back. So I buy them and then I just sort of put them away and don't think about them. And the next quarter we're rebalancing uh, that other quarter of the portfolio. So I'm trying to capture uh, fresh names but also trying to um, give the names that are in the portfolio enough opportunity to work. So, you, so would that mean that you're turning over the portfolio every 12 months? Is that right? It, 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 it doesn't end up being entirely turned over because some names just stay cheap for long periods yep. of time. So Hewlett Packard's a good example. It's cheap. It's up a little bit. It still stays cheap. It's still in the portfolio. Many, many of the names will be in there for longer than that. I think, the turnover varies from year to year. I think the turnover in the last year was something like 35%. Okay. So uh, have you ever regression tested rebalancing versus buy and hold? Yes. So there's lots of work, uh, particularly done by a friend of mine who's out here, Corey Hofstein, on timing luck, he calls it. And right. so basically, if you rebalance once a year, then all of your timing luck is dependent on the day that you rebalance. And if you rebalance in right. January, you capture the January effect. December, you miss it. June might be the worst time of the year. October might be. So when you rebalance, it becomes incredibly important to the portfolio. To the extent possible, you want to minimize your timing luck. And so one way to do that is just to sort of always be buying what's in the portfolio or you know, buying and selling the names in the portfolio and keeping the portfolio current. It's just, it's incredibly uh, difficult to do when there are other things going on. So that, you know, the, the ETF raises money by people investing in the ETF. And so there's a lot of work for the sub-advisor in there trading that. Mm. Uh, quarterly is just sort of enough to keep the portfolio fresh enough, enough to eliminate a lot of the seasonal timing luck, not all of it, but a lot of it. And, uh, and sort of, again, just going back to making it as simple as possible and, uh, 
you know, I'm, I'm almost like Pareto principle, 80, mm. 20 rule. Like I want to get 80% of the value for about 20% of the effort and, and basically quarterly basically gets you there. Mm, interesting. And uh, so that meant you would have been fully invested during the COVID dip, I guess. Yeah, we rebalanced March 20. That was, so there was a little bit of luck in that because we got some extraordinarily good names, Berkshire, Markel, Schwab. And this time around, we've rebalanced and similarly. Uh, so we rebalanced 620, uh, June 20, and got uh, Lockheed Martin, which I think is a pretty good, interesting name. And another one I'm just slightly blanking on. I can't believe it. <laughs> Intel. Intel was cheap this time around. Right. Okay. Yeah, good. Well, I think I think that covers my list of questions, Cam, if you've got anything to add. Well, just one last question um, for the, because I think a lot of what you guys talked about is great, but probably over the head of some of our listeners at this stage to buy. So just one final question. I think one of the things that is challenging for a lot of people when they're introduced to value investing for the first time is the contrarian nature of it. Uh, and, and how do you keep your head and I know one of the things I liked about reading the Aquarius Multiple is you had a lot of great quotes from a lot of people about being a contrarian. How do you do that? How do you keep your head when uh, the fan mags are going through the roof and just stick to your stick to your strategy? I just complain to everybody, and I and I, <laughs> I just whinge to my wife, whinge to all my value investor friends, whinge on my podcast. <laughs> Wind on my Twitter account. Uh, I, I haven't really come up with a really good way of doing it. I always said to my wife, "I've got this. I've got this thing where I said, hey, I, I, this is what I think is going to happen. Value's going to get, you know, beaten up for quite a while here, and I'm going to come and say to you that, you know, this is all too hard. I'm going to throw it in. I'm going to go and buy some of these growthier names. And at that time, I want you to remind me about this conversation. And I just, I don't want to say that to her because I know that once I say that to her, she will repeat that back to me. And she said to me a few times, do you want me to tell you now? I'm like, no, 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 just wait a little bit longer. Don't, don't say it yet. You know, it's hard. The way that I do it, I, in being serious, I, I look back, I, you know, I'm pretty data-driven, pretty data-driven, data-driven. I look back at all these other periods of time where value has underperformed, you know, they always coincide with pretty famous bull market peaks, 1999 being the last really famous one, infamous one. Mm. And I look at a lot of the research that other shops like AQR, uh, OSAM, all these sort of more quantitative value shops over here. And I can look at, you know, Berkshire is struggling at the moment too. Anybody who's got a value bent, a more traditional value bent is struggling a little bit in the States particularly. I look at their research and I, you know, I'm trying to find out, is, there, is, this, is, is this kind of value investing dead? Is there a problem with it? Let's look at all the things that, is it a function of interest rates? Because interest rates are low. Is that what's sort of driving it? Can we kill that idea? Are these portfolios unusually junky? As a, are, they, are they not earning as much on assets as they used to? Are they carrying more debt than they used to? And so I just go through this list of things and keep on testing these ideas. Anytime I hear an idea, it's not working because X and I try and test X and try and see if that's really the case. So far, I haven't really been able to diagnose why it's not working. And so I think that it's just sometimes that's what happens in the market, that good strategies underperform for periods of time. Every strategy has its, has its time when it's working and it's time when it's not working. And at the moment, it's values turn to not work. So, so when you go to, when you go and see your wife and tell her you're giving up, she she's going to go out and short the the, the fan gap stocks because that's capitulation, isn't it? Really, she'll say, "Thank God, I can't hear it anymore." <laughs> when you say value is not working, I mean I'm still getting good returns um, as a, a you know mix of quality and value, I guess, but mainly value. You you must still be getting acceptable returns, I would think, wouldn't you? Well, it has been, that, that's right. It has been a pre, on a relative basis, value was underperforming, but on an absolute basis, value has been doing reasonably well. And that's been one of the mm. more, uh, one of the more difficult things over the last decade of, on a relative basis, value has turned in a pretty good showing. It's, sorry, on an absolute basis, value's turned in a pretty good showing. It's just on a relative basis, it's lagged. Um, but that's unusual. Most of the time, value does outperform pretty materially. And the question is usually why is it outperforming? Is it because you're taking on more risk or is there some behavioural reason why these things get too cheap? People just overreact to bad news. This time around, it's sort of, it's difficult to diagnose the reason why it's underperforming. Um, 
it's not a nice time to be a value guy. But having said that, I look at the landscape right now for the positions in the portfolio and what that has implied in the past. And I do think that the forward returns for value are very good here. Even if we go into something like, so if you look at Japan, pretty famously went into a massive stock market crash in 1990. It's never recovered from that stock market crash. But if you're a value guy in Japan from 1990 to date, using just very simple price to earnings, price to cash flow, price to book type metrics, you've done very, very well. You've massively outperformed and generated very good returns over that period, even though the market is down. So I sort of think if that happens in the States, um, value is going to be okay here. And value within sectors and industries has done quite well. It's just that value has tended, when it's unconstrained across the whole market, has tended to avoid tech, which has been very good mm. this time around, and has tended to be more concentrated in financials and energy, which have, which have stumbled um, pretty significantly but, through this period. But that's why I like value, because it, you know, over the long term, it gives you a great return, you know, double market. In, in my case anyway, but, uh, you know, there'll be fads when tech stocks will have their day in the sun and people will jump on that bandwagon because it's getting 30% returns, triple market, something like that. Uh, but that won't last because because no tree grows to the sky. That's that's just the basic way of, you know, economies. If, yeah, if, you're, if, a man after, if, you're a man after my own heart. Yeah. <laughs> I, I couldn't agree more. Like, that's that's exactly what I think. They just have to, there are periods of time where it, it all looks a little bit too easy and you wonder why you do all this extra work as a value guy when mm. you can just go and buy these other names. But then there's a reckoning and then you're reminded yes. um, why it is that you do a little bit more work. Exactly. Yes, that's what I think too. So you've got a podcast, Tobias. Can you tell us where we find that? Yeah, the podcast is called The Acquirer's Podcast. Uh, it's on all platforms. We distribute it through Anchor, but it, it comes across everything. Um, had some good names on it. Interviewed the five of the seven partners of Tweedy Brown, which is a very well-known old-school value shop set up in 1920, and they were Benjamin Graham brokers back in the day. <laughs> so we got to chat to those guys. It was really fun. Wow. Uh, I've got Cliff Asness, who's the founder, CEO, uh, Chief Investment Officer of AQR. I'm going to interview him tomorrow. That'll come out in a few weeks. And then I've got another one where called Value After Hours where I just chat to two value invested friends of mine about whatever's sort of happening in the market. And that's been, um, it's been getting some pretty good traction. It's been pretty fun, but it's all on the Acquirers podcast channel. Terrific. Well, we'll check that out. Uh, thanks so much for chatting with us today. And if you ever go through one of these depressed uh, periods <laughs> instead of... Know? Complaining to your wife, just give us a call. Yeah. Just jump on the Twitter feed. Jump on my Twitter feed. I do it all day long in the Twitter feed. Yeah, come back to Australia. <laughs> you can make the money here as well. Soon enough. All right. Well, thanks again, mate. We appreciate you taking time out of your afternoon to have a chat. That was terrific. And uh, thanks for all the work that you've done with the books. You've helped uh, a lot of people. My absolute pleasure. Real uh, fun chatting to you guys. Love chatting to value guys. So uh, particularly Aussies, that, that's really fun. <laughs>